It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 9th of September. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The new British government gets to work with a new Northern Secretary. And I'll be speaking to each of the Northern Ireland Party leaders and will urge them to form an executive as soon as possible. I know the House shares my view that Northern Ireland needs a stable, functioning, uh, fully functioning, devolved government to deliver um, on the issues that matter to people most. That's the new Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. Northern Ireland is a great place, a wonderful part of our United Kingdom. And that's a, a former Northern Secretary, Theresa Villiers. The main barrier to the resumption of devolved power-sharing government is, of course, the Northern Ireland Protocol. So will he undertake to push that legislation through as quickly as possible and use the Parliament Act to get it through. Batons may change, but it seems uh, the Tory policy of uh, dismantling or abolishing the protocol continues. The protocol has barriers that have been put up to trade and other things, and we can fix them through negotiation, but if not, we will fix them through legislation. Okay, they're going to do it one way or another. They say that's Crete. Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Secretary, speaking in Westminster this week. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy, who's on the line. Uh, A very good morning to you, Matt Carthy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. It it looks uh, as though the British government is intent on continuing its policy in relation to Northern Ireland. Good morning, Michael, and hello to your listeners. And yes, um, the rhetoric would certainly point in that direction. But as with all things political, the real politic, I think, will uh, w- will remain um, uh, an issue. And the the fact of the matter is that the protocol is in place at the insistence of a British government. They negotiated it, they agreed it, they signed up to it. And since then, at the behest largely of the DUP, they have been trying to undermine it, despite the fact that a majority of people in the North voted to remain in the European Union and the fact that most businesses, communities, political leaders, civic society 
want the protocol to be implemented um, and they want to see you know some changes absolutely mm. but they want so that so to so on, so, on so you trust you, you, you trust the british government when it comes to northern ireland do you Absolutely not, and that's why it is fundamental. Well, 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 I mean, what's the point in telling us that they negotiated this? Uh, I mean, there's an element of trust uh, trust in that statement, is there not? They did. No, they, what we have is an international agreement, and what we have is an agreement that's signed up to by the British government, not with Sinn Féin, not even with the Irish government, but mm. with the European Union. Yeah. So they know, and that's why I reference the real politic that will come into this process. They know that there will be... Um, price to be paid for mm. reneging on an international agreement, not only with the EU but also with other potential well, trading partners into the future. That may, that may claim lies the strength yeah. of the argument that is there alongside, and this shouldn't be undervalued, the fact that they are acting um, and they say at the behest of an interest of the North but for a position that does not have majority support, there's nowhere close to majority well, support. I, I don't know if that matters to the British government. Uh, if there's votes uh, to be had in England on this, and that would certainly seem to be the case, uh, well, then that's prob- probably what they're interested in. Uh, when it, it comes uh, to a price, uh, well, I suppose the clock is ticking down to the 15th of September, isn't it, when the European Commission may decide to refer this problem to the European Court of Justice. Yeah, there's a number of processes that will, uh, I think, um, c- com- come together over the next number of months. You mentioned the uh, Commission's deliberations in relation to potential legal action. You mentioned, the, <coughs> or we could mention, the fact that the Northern Secretary has a legal obligation to either call uh, an Assembly election or change the legislation in respect of the governing of the Assembly. And all the time, people in the North, just like people in this state and people in Britain, are facing what is... A catastrophic cost of living emergency and the first task we would argue um, is that we need to have in place a restoration of the executive and the um, assembly so that those bodies, those elected bodies mm. can actually start And the Northern Secretary agrees with you and he says he, he'll oversee that uh, he'll preside over the restoration of uh, the institutions once the protocol issue has been settled that's right. And what we will say, what we are saying is there are issues with the protocol. I think they have been overstated, but the, whatever issues are there can be dealt with in a bilateral agreed format. For very narrow political reasons, the British government have turned their face against that. Um, to my mind, what we will see, I believe, is a realisation that with all the myriad of challenges that are facing the British government and wider, um, the, the wider global, mm. uh, the gl- global economy in particular, that we will see a, a, a deliberation, probably in private within British government circles, as to whether or not this really is the, the battle that they want to be fighting at this, at this time. And I right. think there will be a realisation that rather than being something that needs to be removed, the protocol is something that is actually protecting the economy, okay. society, the political process in the, in the North, and that whatever changes are required can be done in a bilateral and agreed format. Are you sure they don't have the advantage in this? Well, I don't know what advantage anybody could have them or could ex- ex- uh, extract from the position of the current British government that, as you say, has been re- um, reaffirmed yeah. by the new Prime Minister because what they are essentially saying is that they will 
um, break international law with Brinsley mm. on uh, an, agre- an agreement. Yeah. That will have it's incredible. consequences yeah. for Ireland, yeah. we know, but it will also have yeah. consequences for Britain in terms of mm. its negotiations because they're... It's they incredible, but when... A long-standing relationship. But when the, the British Europe. Army arrived on this island and slaughtered uh, God knows how many people over the years, uh, that was incredible too. Uh, but we're just in another incredible situation with our relationship with the British, are we not? We are, but we would hope okay. that there is a recognition across the British political establishment and across all of society that yeah. we have put in and invested huge amounts of time. Well, there's always been a lot of false hope. There's always been a lot of false hope over the years. And are you sure that the British government doesn't have the advantage? Uh, because it could turn around and say it's going to cut off Ireland's gas supply. Well, again, that it would be ironic if they were to... Uh, pursue such a um, su- such a, a mechanism. If they were to do so, they would need to do so for the entire island of Ireland. So it would be highly ironic if they were to say we're actually in order to protect the North, as they would try and infer that their position on the protocol is, we're actually going to starve you of energy, um, the exact same um, people. So um, I don't believe that that would be something that um, would be pursued. We're going to face potential energy shortages they, 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 they couldn't cut off the supply to the Republic in isolation, is that the case? That's my understanding is that we have a, an All-Ireland network that um, comes um, comes through Belfast and mm. is, is um, very difficult, if I not mean, impossible to, 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 be, to, to be silly and simplistic about it surely they could put a valve on it or something if they decided to do that, I mean that really must be the race car though, that they're supplying this island with gas well, I haven't heard that other than in political commentary, but certainly I haven't heard that as a realistic option that the British government are considering. OK, but in the meantime, uh, there is no government in Northern Ireland. And uh, despite uh, all of uh, the rhetoric from Sinn Féin over how many decades God knows, uh, we continue to live with British rule for the time being and what we are doing is obviously trying to move towards a United Ireland build support for that concept I think support is actually growing in the meantime we have an mm. obligation as political leaders and representatives to ensure that we provide support to those families Well if the protocol is abolished will Sinn Féin take seats in Stormont? In Stormont? Yeah well, as I say, we have a, we have a mandate. We will try to implement that mandate if, to the best if the, of our if ability. The, and if there is if if there is a pr- proposition within Stormont that allows us to represent and deliver for yeah. our people, then absolutely. If, we if that so. but if that I, means I that the Northern Ireland Protocol is abolished and uh, there's a hard border on the island of Ireland, will Sinn Féin take seats in Stormont? I think that will be the least of the concerns of um, most businesses, workers, families, because if the protocol is abolished... But, but I'm sure Sinn Féin would have, have, a, have... I'm sure Sinn Féin would, would have an opinion on it. What we will end up in that scenario, let's be very clear on this, in what we would end up in that scenario is a no-deal Brexit. And what that would mm. mean um, for the Irish economy, north, south, okay. east and west, would be catastrophic. Ca- no doubt about it. And it would also put the peace be, process um, at risk. Would Sinn Féin... Well, what we would have in that scenario, in my view, were we to come to that point, is a very um, urgent need to accelerate the deliberations in respect of a Poland and Irish unity because it would be only well whatever the about that, there is, no Good Friday, there, there, the, there is no Good Friday agreement without power sharing, is there? 
Well, it's an integral part. There are three strands to the um, to the Good Friday Agreement, as you know. And yeah, one of them but is it, the but, internal workings but of you, the you, North, which include the um, the institutions in the North. I know, but there is no Good Friday there. Agreement without all three combined. Uh, and the point here is that there is no power sharing at the moment, so the Good Friday Agreement is limbo. Uh, if it's to be solved, the British government and the unionists say the Northern Ireland Protocol has to go, uh, and then that leaves a really odd situation for Sinn Féin if you're going to take seats uh, in a, a parliament uh, that will uh, o- oversee or result in the, 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 the re-establishment of it will result in the resumption of a hard border on this island. Let's be very clear. There is no way that it can be contemplated that the protocol would be uh, would be abolished in, in its entirety unilaterally by a British government because the consequences of that would be absolutely devastating. We would be going back to square one in relation to the Brexit discussions because essentially what you would have, um, I think I can say with confidence, is a no-deal Brexit scenario. The European Union would um, would um, renege and um, withdraw from the, um, the entire withdrawal agreement because they would need to because a fundamental aspect of it had been breached by the British government. In that event, the economic consequences, and we've discussed this on a number of occasions, would be catastrophic. And you consider the trading relationship that this island in its entirety mm. has with Britain, when you consider what that would mean for um, the, the social advances that we've made in the years since the Good Friday Agreement and for the political process. So the question you're asking in relation to what a Stormont Assembly would look like in that scenario, I simply couldn't answer because I couldn't envisage it because, as I say, the, the discussions that would be have would be much more macro because the only way in which Ireland could be in any way protected in that scenario is if we were to accelerate the deba- okay. debate around Irish reunification. And as you know, that debate well, is happening yeah. now anyway, yeah. and that will continue um, into the months and weeks ahead. What we want to see is that well, debate happen mm, in a managed and planned way and the, in a constructive There's um, nothing certain about way. There is nothing certain about that, and I'm sure you'd accept that, and there's a lot of uncertainty before we get to that point. Uh, but before we finish up our conversation uh, today, uh, obviously there's uh, an endless amount of tributes being made uh, to Elizabeth uh, on the death of uh, the Queen of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, do you wish to share your thoughts with us? Well, uh, I am obviously extend my own sympathy to the British royal family and to the British people and particularly to the people across the island of Ireland who would consider themselves loyalists of the, um, to the, the British Crown and to the British um, monarch. And for those people, particularly unionists, I understand and accept that Queen Elizabeth um, has a very particular um, place in their hearts and minds and that her loss will be deeply felt felt by them. So I absolutely um, express my condolences to all of of them and to acknowledge, and I think this has been done very well by Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou MacDonald, that the British royal family in recent years have been um, very important actors in the process of reconciliation um, on this island and that role um, needs to be uh, acknowledged. And I think it is... Um, a very positive thing and a very welcome thing and probably something that we wouldn't have envisaged, you know, looking at the record of our successors, that Irish Republicans are in a position to say sincerely that we express regret and sorrow at, at, at the passing of a British head of, uh, of state. Um, and I hope for the sake of the peace process and for um, all of the efforts that we've previously discussed, um, that we will be in a position to do that with her son, Charles, um, in his, his reign, that mm. he will continue to 
um, work with all of us in the process of reconciliation and community building. Okay, they don't really have a, a role. It's a real ambassadorial role, isn't it? It is, but yeah. it's important, and I think some of the most poignant moments of the peace process did involve sure, yeah. um, interactions yeah. with the um, with the British royal mm. family. Particularly, I think the meeting of Martin McGuinness and the Queen was a seismal moment, um, and it, it was symbolic, but mm. it was an important symbol because it was a symbol on behalf of both um, to maybe those detractors of the peace process and to those who um, would be sceptical about the bona fides of either side, depending on the perspective that people were willing to put aside um, what might be personal um, animosities historically um, to send a message that, that we are entering okay. into a new, a new era. And I think that is so while it's symbolic, those sim- symbols um, can be very important as we try to build peace and reconciliation. Okay, we leave there. Thank you indeed for joining Thank us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Fein TD for Cavan Monaghan, Matt Carthy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may remember the Great Famine of uh, the 1980s in Ethiopia and uh, the incredible humanitarian response uh, when we saw people literally dying on our our TV screens uh, through the Live Aid uh, programme and uh, how the world moved to help a a nation that was starving. Uh, There's a, a situation at the moment in Ethiopia which is quite probably worse Uh, because it's not just in Ethiopia, it's across what's called uh, the Horn of Africa in Ethiopia, Somalia and Kenya. The three countries have had no rain for four years, four seasons. The rains have failed uh, and people are already dying uh, and drought uh, will lead to starvation. The extent of this is incredibly frightening. There's 22 million people, according to the United Nations World Food Programme, who are at risk of starvation across the Horn of Africa. And you may be aware of this because it has been brought to our attention and brought to light, uh, not by a BBC journalist, as was uh, the case last time around. In fact, the coverage this time around has been very minuscule. Uh, but uh, Fine Gael Minister Colin Brophy, Minister for Overseas, aid and uh, the diaspora has been in Kenya and you may have seen his reports on RTE television. The Minister is on uh, the phone with us now. A very good morning to you uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What can you tell us about your trip to Kenya? Uh, Good morning Mike. Uh, I tell you the first thing I can tell you is this and you're quite right in your introduction to paint the starkness of the situation we're facing. But the main reason that I went to Kenya and to South Sudan was because what we saw in the 1980s in the response to the actual famine was the world, humanity reacting. But what we now have as a challenge is to react before that happens. So we literally have millions of people. I saw firsthand literally hundreds and hundreds of children being weighed and measured, all of them malnourished, a lot of them severely malnourished. And as you quite rightly pointed out, the rains have failed, their animals are dead. They were a pastoral community. They had cattle, they had goats, They some of them had camels. They're all dead or dying. The grass is gone. There's no ability to feed themselves. The only thing that's between them and famine is the work of the NGOs like Concern, like Oxfam, and obviously the UN and the international community. And to be honest, we're not doing enough. We're not doing nearly enough. Irish aid has made this a priority. We have spent 
over 74 million in the area. And we have an, I announced another 3 million. But we need the global community. We need the United States. We need the EU. We need our partners to wake up. Because what we don't want is we don't want to reach the famine stage and have everybody turn around and go, how did this happen? We have a chance now. But it's only a matter of weeks and months. But when you're on the ground there, when you get a chance to see firsthand how close these people are to complete famine, you realise how little time is left. And the scenes are harrowing. The scenes are literally of mothers holding tiny, tiny babies in their arms, being given a little tiny pouch of emergency nutrition food. And that's all that will keep that child alive for the next day, for the next week, for the next month. So this is what we have to do. We have to have the international community wake up and recognise that if we get a quick response now, we can save millions of lives. If we turn our back and do nothing, well then yes, we will see the like of what happened in the 1980s. Uh, I'm sure uh, you saw terrible things, uh, and I'm sure it was very difficult. Uh, Was it difficult to leave? It is very difficult. I have been the Development Aid Minister now for just about over two years. Uh, I never saw anything like it on any visit I have done. I have seen and been in Africa in areas where there are poverty and where there are uh, conditions. But to go as part of a group and to see the incredible work that's been done on one hand, which is to be absolutely praised, but also then just to see the... The, the, what humanity, what, what the result of, a, a, I suppose, a lack of humanity can be, it's very difficult. Um, the one thing, though, that has really motivated me out of this is uh, to do what I'm doing with you here this morning, uh, to talk about it, to be a voice. Um, there was a man talked to me, and he was standing there, his family were around. He'd lost everything. I mean, absolutely everything. His way of life, his animals, his ability to feed his family, his ability to care for his family. He turned to me, he said, our animals are dead. The trees are dying. The grass is gone. He said, we'll be next. And we will be the next people who will end up dying. He said, please do something to have our voice heard before we are dead. And that really strikes at you and makes you realize that you have to do everything that you can in, in your way uh, to do it. And that's why I think it's so important to get this message out. The work that the NGOs, the charities do on the ground uh, in uh, places uh, like the Horn of Africa is incredible. And the individuals who war- work for the NGOs are incredible people. Uh, I think when you speak to them, you'll find that they've been in every war-torn spot of the world or every famine-stricken spot of the world. It's the same people uh, who go to these disaster zones. There's a catastrophic crisis taking place at the moment. 22 million people at risk of starvation. Uh, an incredible situation. And as you say, it would be better to act before they start dying rather than afterwards. Uh, and I think it's important to realise people are already dying, but it is at a low, uh, unacceptable level because children are dying gradually of malnutrition. Mm. Their parents are dying. People are dying because of a lack of being able to have proper health care in the camps and in the areas where they've congregated. But there is a risk of a tipping point where what is unacceptable at the moment becomes an international catastrophe. And you really don't want a situation 
where in six months' time, everybody is going, oh, we must help the Horn of okay. Africa. Did nobody see this coming? I mentioned those NGOs because people can help uh, by supporting uh, the charities to do the work that they do overseas. Uh, But uh, speaking of uh, the NGOs, uh, the CEOs of 12 charities wrote to the Irish Times uh, in a letter that was published yesterday commending you for your efforts to shine a light on this crisis. Uh, And uh, they also said that we must mobilise other donors who are not responding as they once would have. Uh, But then they went on to talk about what else we can do apart from supporting the work that they do. And they said that as we look to Budget 23, we should reflect on Ireland's own experience and legacy of famine and ensure that we are investing in ending hunger, tackling climate change and ensuring that those who are furthest left behind across the globe are reached. Uh, Can the charities expect an increase in uh, the amount that the government allocates to overseas development aid? Well, I obviously can't pre-announce any aspect of the budget. You can rest assured, your listeners can rest assured, and the charities know this because I've talked to them, I am very actively supporting an increase in the overseas development aid uh, for the budget. Last year, we bought our budget for the first time to over $1 billion. Um, we have a programme of work which we carry out for a small country. We're one of the most proactive and generous countries in terms of what we do in the development aid side. And we're also one of the most ethical because we don't link anything to do with our support for countries to trade or anything else. We provide on the basis of need. Those who need it most receive the most. And I think the key thing for us is to keep that approach uh, to our aid budget and to ensure that even though, and I fully recognise there will be people listening out there today who are affected by the cost of living, who are affected by so many issues that are happening in our own country, but as a country and as a nation, I think one of our great strengths is we have a memory back to what is obviously not in living memory, but only 150 odd years ago, to what we as a nation went through. And it motivates us in the way we think about how important it is to continue to look after the most vulnerable. So we'll be continuing that approach uh, in, in, in this budget uh, okay. coming up. Minister, thank you indeed for taking the time to speak to us today. That's uh, the Minister for Overseas Aid and uh, the Diaspora, Colin Brophy. Michael Reed on LMFM. She's always been the queen, hasn't she? I mean, there's never been a king as far as most of us are are concerned. We wouldn't remember a king. And indeed, uh, there's only been one person who has ever been the queen uh, as far as any of us can remember, realistically speaking. But what do you say about uh, the death of Elizabeth? Let's hear how the death of uh, the queen is being reported uh, this morning by Tom. Times Radio, a partner to LMFM. The country has entered a period of mourning following the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. There will be gun salutes in London later, 96 rounds for her 96 years of life and flags are flying at half-mast at Buckingham Palace, Downing Street and across the world. Her son, who is now King Charles III, is to travel to London before addressing the nation this evening. He spent last night with the rest of the royal family at Balmoral, where the Queen died peacefully yesterday afternoon. He said it had been a moment of the greatest sadness for them all. Talk TV's royal editor Sarah Hewson says a detailed plan is now in place. It sees the return today of the King and the Queen Consort from Balmoral. Charles, a grieving son, but also now the King, 
with a duty to fulfil. He is expected to meet the Prime Minister today, both of them this week thrust into enormous new roles. And then he will also meet the Earl Marshal, that is the Duke of Norfolk, and that is the person responsible for the Queen's funeral. Parliament will convene at midday for a special session to remember Queen Elizabeth and there's to be a service at St Paul's Cathedral. It's expected that a ceremony at St James's Palace tomorrow will officially proclaim Charles as King. Her Majesty's death has been marked by nations across the world overnight. Lights on the Eiffel Tower were dimmed while the regal colours of purple and silver were shone onto the Empire State Building. The Queen's impact on presidents and prime ministers has been evident in their statements. Joe Biden described her as a stateswoman of unmatched dignity. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the Queen had empathy and the ability to connect with every passing generation. And Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says she embodied and exhibited a timeless decency and an enduring calm. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says the Queen was quite simply extraordinary. This is a time of deep sadness. Young or old, there is no doubt that a chapter is closing today. And with that, we share our thanks for an incredible woman who we were lucky enough to call our Queen. Former MP Sir Nicholas Soames is the grandson of Winston Churchill and a close friend of King Charles III. He's told Times Radio it's a dark day, but the depth of the tributes to the Queen say it all. Well, I think one of the most astonishing things about the Queen was how she managed to be familiar with to all of us and in an age of sort of brute gross ghastly celebrity she managed to to be familiar to her people at the same time as retaining very much the mystique of sovereignty and monarchy. Last night, thousands of people gathered outside Buckingham Palace in London. This morning, there are hundreds of floral tributes and rows of flickering candles by the gates. Times Radio's Cara Bentley reports from the Royal Palace. Despite the drizzle and the wind, people continue to arrive, some taking a detour in their commute to stop and lay flowers, others who are here on holiday and are now video calling their family back home to show them the messages and flowers that neatly line the front gates. These people came to pay their respects. To come see this before everybody else got here. It's the least we can do, really. It's going to be really missed. I don't know if anybody can fill that void. It's just, it's just sad. It's like pathetic fallacy of being in the dark world right now. The surrounding roads are closed, contributing to a quiet and sombre mood, with most people here on their own passing through to remember this moment. A number of sporting events, including cycling's tour of Britain, horse racing and test cricket have been called off. And an online book of condolence has opened on the Royal Family's website, and people are encouraged to write a tribute to Her Majesty. Rachel Jewell reporting uh, for Times Radio. Times Radio is a partner of LMFM. Now, there was a king, of course. Uh, The last king was Queen Elizabeth's father, King George. And uh, before King George passed away and Elizabeth took the throne, uh, she made a, a speech to the Commonwealth. Let's go back 75 years in time uh, and hear from the then 21-year-old Princess Elizabeth. 
If we all go forward together with an unwavering faith, a high courage and a quiet heart, we shall be able to make of this ancient commonwealth, which we all love so dearly, an even grander thing, more free, more prosperous, more happy, and a more powerful influence for good in the world than it has been in the greatest days of our forefathers. To accomplish that, we must give nothing less than the whole of ourselves. There is a motto which has been borne by many of my ancestors, a noble motto, I serve. Those words were an inspiration to many bygone heirs to the throne when they made their nightly dedication as they came to manhood. I cannot do quite as they did, but through the inventions of science, I can do what was not possible for any of them. I can make my solemn act of dedication with the whole empire listening. I should like to make that dedication now. It is very simple. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have the strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. Isn't it an amazing recording? The quality really is excellent given uh, that uh, it's 75 years ago when the then 21-year-old Princess Elizabeth recorded that, made that speech, and that was recorded for her uh, just before uh, she went on to become uh, the Queen of the United Kingdom. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as expected, there was bad news yesterday from the ECB. The Governing Council unanimously decided to raise uh, the three key ECB rates by 75 basis points. Soaring inflation across Europe is the driving force behind this decision. The last reading was 9.1 for a monthly reading. But if you look at the last 10 readings, they were the last 10 highest readings in turn. And while we conclude, of course, that energy is still the major source of inflation, it's 38.3% compared with a year ago, slightly moving down in these August numbers, but it is still a dominant factor, as is the increase in food. But we also have an inflation that spreads across the whole range of products, in particular in the service sector, where supply factors are less prevalent and where demand plays a role. Christine Lagarde, the president of uh, the European Central Bank, at a, a press conference yesterday, Lagarde said the ECB just had to act. In the face of an inflation that is extremely high, that is uh, of a magnitude and persistent persistence across sectors of that nature, obviously determined action had to be taken. Now, three quarters of 1% is a significant increase, but it seems that there's more to follow. We also decided that this was not an isolated decision, 
but that we would raise interest rates further. We didn't say that we would raise interest rates at 75% as if 75 was the norm. It is not. We will determine, meeting by meeting, on the basis of data, how we reach to that level of interest which will actually return us to the 2% target in the medium term. Let's speak to Paul Merriman, who's uh, the CEO of AskPaul.ie and Pax Financial. Good morning, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. We were warned in advance to expect uh, this increase in interest rates. Is it the right approach, though? Hey, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yes, look, like the guy said, the interest rates, uh, sorry, inflation across the board is extremely high, over 9%. And it has shown signs of stopping the growth at such pace, which is a little bit of good news for consumers, I suppose. Uh, but, look, they're going to get the 2% probably by the end of next year. I think it might be more than 2%. Now, I'm very surprised that they've gone at 075 um, so aggressively, because that's not really how the European Central Bank would work, uh, typically speaking. So we've already had half a percent a, few, a couple of months ago, now 075 So three months ago, ECB rates were zero. Now they're 1.25, and he's saying we're heading towards, they're saying we're heading towards 2%. Um, it's going to be a lot higher than 2% in my opinion. Uh, I think, like I said, by the end of next year, you're probably going to get to 25 or 2.75%. And if you put the bank's margin on top of that, you're probably looking at kind of normal interest rates now in Ireland being about 4 and 4.5% by the end of next year into 2024, um, where we had been circling around 2 to 2.5%. Uh, and that 2 to 2.5% was already uh, quite high compared to the rest of the European Union. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, the European Union started to look at the wider European Union and we're involved, obviously, in which I think is great for the for the country. However, they don't really care about Ireland, and they don't care how much others banks are making on their margin either. Uh, you look at interest rates across in the UK have been ridiculously low, uh, and the same over in the main main Europe as well. Um, but it's it, it's it, it's really really bad news for mortgage holders, and especially at a time when KBC and Ulster Bank are pulling out. KBC and Ulster Bank, in my opinion, have been like the Ryanair uh, to the to the banks in this country, and that they've driven down interest rates over the last number of years and made it extremely competitive. Uh, and now they're gone, but they're going. They're going to be gone by the end of next year, um, and we're left with Bank of Ireland, Premier B, and AIB, which haven't, in my opinion, got the best record uh, in, in Ireland. So it, it's a shame. Um, I recommend it here. People fix and fix yeah. long term and don't wait. Do it as soon as possible. Um, you know, if you, if you go through a mortgage process today, the banks are so busy, uh, you could be looking at three to four months approval. But if you actually get your approval, the rate's probably going to go up in the meantime oh, anyway. Right, uh, okay. So, so, so it's, it, not, it's, it's, not, it's not just a matter of uh, clicking go on the internet. Uh, you no, have to get approved. Not. Yeah, it's, okay. It's not. Now, in fairness, what I would recommend listeners this morning to do is ring your own bank, first of all, and see can you move uh, to a fix rate with them because that'd be easier and have to go through the switcher process hmm. because all banks, including the main three lenders and other lenders like Finance or other Franklin's sake, they're, they've been really good at uh, really competitive rates and they're, they're yeah. putting them up quickly in fairness as well. Um, but they are taking months for decisions and months to get a, a mortgage over the line. So if you came in to me today looking for a mortgage switcher, you'd be blessed to have it done by the end of this year at this stage. Uh, right. so, and like I said, I think you're going to get another ECB hike by the end of the year. Now, well, I will have to give the bank some due here in that the AIB, Bank of Warren Premier's B, have not passed on 
expected the ECB rate hikes onto their variable rate and their fixed customers just yet or change their fixed rates or variable rate cost, uh, rates just yet. Uh, obviously, they have a tracker mortgage and we know that in order mm-hmm. to the tracker mortgage being a kind of sacred mortgage and over the last decade, you'll be told don't move your tracker because it's been linked to the ECB, which has been zero. That's now no longer the case. So yeah. that tracker is going to get very expensive. So if you've got a tracker, you will be receiving a letter in the next couple of weeks about this 0.75, and you would receive one a couple of weeks ago in relation to the previous 0.5 increase. And the banks so, don't yes, have any choice. They have to pass it on to Tracker Mortgage. Yeah, they have service. to pass yeah, on yeah, to Tracker. Yeah, That's yeah. what the deal is. Yeah. So your deal, your contract with the bank is that you track the European Central mm. Bank rate. And these are massive back before the recession yeah. of 2007, 2008. Uh, so anyone that bought a property really between probably 02 and 06, 07 is probably going to be on a Tracker rate. And they've been great. They've been paying really, really low interest. But unfortunately, when they're in that low interest rate environment and over the last number of years, maybe it's done really well job-wise and the economy has been kind of boom before this uh, uh, the, the cost of living increase, um, you know, before COVID-19 too. And they, they probably stick with a tracker and they haven't overpaid them all. Mm. Than paid, paid. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's awful because the rate's been very cheap. Uh, but that's going to get more expensive. You're going to get popular five to six letters by the end of next year. It's telling you that your rate really? is The bank has mm. to pass them on. So okay. if you're a tracker, it's going to be very expensive. Now, we don't have a crystal ball. I mean, Lagarde is talking about maybe getting to 2%. I think they might get towards 3% and might bring it back to 2 But if you've got, say, a 1.5% tracker with just, let's say, permanent TSB, if the ECB sets a 2%, your new rate is 3.5%. So 2% for the ECB, 1.5% for permanent TSB in that example. Uh, now, you could probably get a 20-year fixed rate for a bit cheaper in the Irish market at the moment as well, um, with likes of Finance Ireland, or you could maybe look at Bank of Ireland, the other banks do 10-year fixed rates. And you'd be cheaper than 3.5%. Mm. A little bit more expensive for the next 12 to 18 months, maybe. But over the next 15, 20 years or 10 years, whatever your term is, your mortgage, and you're also going to stop these letters coming in. Yeah. I think from a financial planning point of view, um, you know, it's very important that you have security in what you're paying and you know what you're paying. That was a very basic a card of a financial yeah. plan. Yeah. Yeah. You have certainty, yeah, mm. and you don't have to worry about it. But, mm. And there's also, and I'm, trying not to, I'm trying not to scaremonger too much. Yeah. We've been telling people to fix rates for the last year, but now it's just alarming how quick they're going up. The big problem first-time buyers are going to have is that they're probably in a fixed rate of two or three or four years, maybe, maybe five. Uh, they got a house the last couple of years. When they come off those fixed rates, those fixed rates are maybe two and a half, two point nine percent. You typically see mm. 
they could be looking at five. Yeah. A two percent rate increase on a three or four hundred grand mortgage is crippling. Like it's mm. really crippling. So even if you're fixed for ten years, what happens when the it's, ten years are over? You're, you're going to be facing into yeah, huge repayments. Well, yeah. Well, the only thing is, it, so interest rates moving a cyclical away. So even mm. after the, the recession of 2007, 2008, it took years from to get to zero. Uh, it's going to take, like you're seeing now, it's going to mm. take nearly eighteen months to get to the two percent, or maybe whatever, but more probably in my opinion. Um, and if, if, if inflation doesn't calm down, and why, why this happens, I think people are probably confused in that they see the cost of living and they think the bank is also getting involved in the cost of living. Basically, what the European Central Bank is doing is trying to take money out of my pocket, your pocket, mm. everybody else's pockets. So by increasing your interest rate, so you don't add fuel to the to, to, to the price. You stop spending. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's stop people listening spend. saying, yeah. I am going to stop spending because I'm really yeah. down. Uh, in, in, and but just explain to me what happened yesterday. Am I right in thinking that depending on the size of your mortgage, uh, that when Christine Lagarde made that announcement yesterday, there were people on trackers uh, who just lost between, let's say, 800, as I say, depending on your mortgage, and 2,000 in the course of the next 12 months. Oh, yeah, but not just that. If you, if you multiply, that's that's low, in my opinion. Right. I mean, I'd say the average tractor is going to probably cost them about maybe thirty to 50,000 in interest over the remaining term. Right. If you got somewhere between 250 and 300,000 by the time they finish rates. Mm. So, yeah, no, you're, you're, that's just people really need to be careful, need to notice, you need to know how your mortgage works as well. Yeah. The mortgage is the biggest financial commitment you're ever going to make. And, and that increase yesterday was on top of the 0.5%, as you say, and you say there's going to be another five increases. Now, I think Christine Lagarde was suggesting they won't be as big as yesterday. She said they wanted to front load the pain. Yeah, she did. And what, what also what they're saying in the European Central Bank is that they're they're going to. Two. She said they're going to two. So she actually mentioned in the in the in the clip she said they're going to two. So you're at one point two five. So if you go by point two five, you're getting another three. Now I just don't think when inflation being nine. I mean, the UK they're expecting inflation to hit double digits um, and, and high double digits, like sixty and seventy percent next year. Um, I don't think that. I think maybe the European Central Bank has moved a little bit too late on this, and that's why you're getting these aggressive rate hikes. They probably should have started increasing rates at the beginning of the year, uh, a little bit quicker out, out of the blocks. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're putting the front loan the pain, um, but I just don't think it's going to do enough. Now, the only, there, there is a kind of slight hope here, I mentioned this at the beginning of the interview as well, that uh, you see the pace of inflation slowing down in August. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Christian Lagarde, I think she mentioned that too. So what, what, what is important to do here is that there may be what you're really making here is on, on Russia and the Ukraine coming to some type of an end um, sooner rather anticipate that that may be anticipated by many um, and if that does happen and the energy supply increases but we're also going to hang over from COVID-19 and supply chains but also what I'd be calling on any business owners I'm not just trying to be a hero on this like we dropped our costs or financial planning services uh, on the back of the uh, back of the cost of living crisis but there's a lot of people out there using the cost of living increases as just putting the boot into consumers as well, uh, and it's, they're not really, they're not really getting that hit in cost themselves. So I think there's still a lot of businesses out there that are making money on the back of this as well, which is which is a shame to see. I think I think we really all need to put on that green jersey and try and see can we help consumers where they are and try and keep our costs as low as possible. Now a lot of businesses are getting hammered by their suppliers and they have to, but I also see across the industry as well that um, you know people are just putting the mm. rates up and putting up and using inflation as an excuse. Uh, and look at the energy look at the billions that the energy companies are making. It, it, it's a bit it's a bit scary what's mm. actually going on on that kind of level but uh, 
Look, if I was, first of all, if it was a consumer that had a mortgage, I'd be fixing it and fix it for a long term. No, no, no matter what, whether, whether you're yeah. on fixed or variable or whatever. Yeah, I mean, even if trackers, even if you're on a 0.5 tracker, you're now paying 1.75, which is still competitive. But yeah. you just heard, you know, you're going to be paying 2.5 next year. So I personally would rather pay 2.7 or 2.9 for the next 10 years and not get any letters. It's a little bit more expensive, but I'm buying that piece of mind. Uh, and, uh, sorry, I think it's going to be way more than uh, what Christian Lagarde said. I think it's going to be way more than 2%. I think you're looking at two and a half minimum, possibly up towards three percent is where the ECB will settle, and we'll probably have to settle there for two or three years. Hmm. And very, very unlikely that they're going to bring rates down once they set at between two and three percent is what you'd hope to expect rates to be. Right. Uh, so we've been living in a false environment of zero percent for the last ten years. Um, we're obviously in the back of you know obviously the, the financial crisis. They need to do something, and it was great, but hmm. that's over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but this this destroys people's plans, doesn't it? You know, what I mean, plans for starting family. Uh, what type of car you're going to drive (laughs) what kind of house you're going to have you know if you're aspiring to to, to move on to a bigger house or or whatever Uh, this really is a life changer yeah, it is a complete life trend. And also, that first time buyers that are saving at the moment now, mm. let's say you need 1,600 euros for the mortgage, you might need 18 or 1,900 now because the banks stress test these things as well. So, if you're going to be looking at a higher interest rate, so it, it might actually stop people even drawing down the mortgage at some stage and applying. And I'm genuinely not trying to be scaremongering here as well because I am, I am conscious that we try to keep things as positive as we can at that point and trying to tell people how to do things the best way possible. Yeah. I'd recommend everybody get. Uh, independent mortgage voice. Don't go to a bank because the bank's only going to have their rates and their best interests at heart. Mm. Sit down with somebody. Our DMs are open on Instagram all the time for free messages. Someone wants to drop us a message and give us an idea what's wrong. We try and help them. But um, go to someone local if you want. Sit down with somebody and say, right, this is my mortgage. This is my term. This is my tracker. What do you recommend I do? Um, and if you have to pay that voice and it's a couple of hundred quid or a hundred euro, whatever something for, it's well worth it because you're going to be saving tens of thousands of mm, yeah. mortgage. Right, well, that puts it into perspective. Paul, thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for that. Uh, that's Paul Merriman, who's the CEO of AskPaul.ie and Pax Financial. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions has called uh, for a significant rise in uh, the minimum wage and a group of private sector unions connect the CWU, the FSU, SIP2 and Unite have come out to support that call. We can speak to Gareth Murphy, who is head of industrial relations and campaigns with the FSU. That's the Financial Services Union. Good morning to you, Gareth and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. I think my first question to you has to be about your members. I'm very surprised to think uh, that people working in uh, the financial services could be on minimum wage, are they? Um, So we actually represent, morning uh, Michael, first of all, thanks for having me. We actually represent um, workers across a range of sectors, banking sector, the financial services more generally, tech sector, and also, more recently, the video game sector as well. We have a group okay. of workers in Game Workers Unite um, who are members of Financial Services Union. And actually, directly within our own sphere, um, uh, the minimum wage and living wage is most relevant to our games uh, members because where we collectively bargain as a union with the um, banks and a number of tech companies, we've collectively bargained entry rates of pay that are above the living wage. Uh, but this is much more a societal um, issue generally than just our sector. And that's why we're working with four or five other trade unions and the Congress of Unions, because okay. overall we know approximately 
20% um, of Irish workers are, are considered to be low wage um, and the living wage would effectively, uh, or, or making the living wage mandatory or statutory would effectively eradicate mm. uh, low wages. So it's a really positive thing and it's something that uh, would, would benefit society as a whole. So it's not just our direct members, yeah. although it is some of them. Obviously. No, fair enough. Uh, I take it it's still a good job to get a job in the bank and you wouldn't expect to be on minimum wage. Uh, but should people expect to be on minimum wage if they're in the gaming industry? Uh, I mean, they really have popular products and they don't come cheap. Um, no, I mean, there's no reason why um, the game sector shouldn't have the living wage as a floor. It is one of the most profitable sectors globally. Um, it's actually passed in terms of revenues and incomes, uh, the film industry and the music industry. Video games now is overwhelmingly the biggest entertainment sector mm. and highly profitable. And there's absolutely no reason why those employers in Ireland shouldn't be paying uh, the living wage to um, all of the workers. Uh, there's quite an uneven wage distribution within video games. So mm. some of the coders and developers, as, you, as you'd expect, are on good wages yeah. and fair play to them. And they, they, they do great work. But then some of the what are called QA testers, so quality assurance testers, so the people who play the games to make sure, you know, all the doors open and all the tricks work and they iron out all the bugs, they are often paid minimum wage or certainly below uh, living wage, mm. but they perform a vital function that anyone who's a gamer knows. The frustration if something doesn't quite work, if there's mm. a glitch, so these guys iron out all those glitches. And, uh, and it's a skill. They, uh, I mean, It's an absolute skill, I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's people who think they're great gamers uh, but wouldn't uh, be able to do that job. Yeah. Uh, and obviously skills uh, should have a, a value. Uh, is the cost of these, uh, I know it's kind of gone off uh, track a, a little bit, but it, it does come down to the wages. Uh, you said they're very, very profitable companies. Is the cost of the games a little bit like CDs used to be? They used to say there's nothing can be done that can't be sold for any less than 20 euro. Uh, lo and behold, uh, competition comes on board, Spotify and some of these other platforms, and CDs now are sold for next to nothing. Um, the, 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 the challenge really is the distribution of the money that's generated through the sales of games. And there's a real uneven distribution. Mm. And this isn't just seen in, in games because we're actually seeing profits recover quite well across the economy generally. And um, we're seeing sort of record levels, billions being recorded by different companies across the economy as a whole. And in games, yeah, globally, there's five or six publishing companies that would be well known by by any in any gamers out there um, mm. and and they 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 hoard essentially a lot of the profits and they aren't fairly distributed amongst those who actually generate the profits through their through their work and mm. um, so the challenge really is about a distribution it's not about affordability um, it's not it's about where that money at the end of the day goes consumers are paying high prices for games uh, but most of that money then is taken by five or six companies globally and it isn't fairly distributed uh, amongst the, the workers and mm. amongst the subcontracting workers because it's an industry that might have five or six top name companies but then lots of different companies are involved in the production chain mm. globally down the line and ultimately you end up with some workers on very, very low wages. And that brings us to everything else that we've been talking about for the last few months. Uh, I mean, for a few minutes minutes ago, we were talking about the interest rates increases. Yesterday, we're continuously 
uh, worrying about the cost of our, our, our bills, uh, not just mortgage bills, but all of the utility bills, the grocery shopping has gone up uh, and so on. And I, I take it at this stage, people on the minimum wage are struggling to get by day to day. Yeah, we're, we're in a very serious crisis, um, like a really serious crisis. It's hard to almost imagine. Ireland is such a rich country. We've got huge wealth within the economy and within the island and then we've got huge wealth also going through the island going through the economy um, and yes in conjunction with that we've got 20% considered low pay and the cost of living crisis is such a, to such a degree now that families are having to make some shocking decisions about what they actually choose what they can afford to pay this winter is it electricity is it energy is it food this isn't an over-exaggeration. This is a very real experience that people are beginning mm. to have to make difficult decisions. Um, and that's kind of frightening in this day and age in, like I said, a country that is rich, is wealthy, and can afford to be decent and fair for everyone. And we know we have a low-wage problem, but I suppose the good news is we actually know there's a solution. It's not like we don't understand how to address this. The living wage is internationally recognised and accepted as a policy mechanism that can eradicate low wages. So we have a solution. And actually this government has committed to do it Mm. in the term of the government. And I suppose what we're saying is we've never faced this sort of urgency right now and now would be the time to do it. Okay, well I think there's a lot of questions about how the government is uh, defining the living wage as uh, opposed uh, to how the Vincentarian Partnership uh, defines it and indeed the time frame uh, and how living standards will have uh, changed and the cost of living will have increased by the time it's introduced. Uh, But what about the argument about chasing inflation? Uh, If you take your gamers, for example, uh, the people who are checking the games uh, on uh, the minimum wage at the moment, if you bring them up to €14 an hour, let's say, uh, what about the coders uh, and uh, the other guys who are on good money at the moment? Will they not all want an increase? Um, Well, I think all workers do deserve an increase and do deserve a decent increase, um, kind of regardless of 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 whether you're lower or middle income. Okay, but then do we have to pay more for the do we have to pay more then for the games, and then do we have less money in our pockets and go back looking for another pay increase and so on? So I think this argument about inflation it maybe misses the the cause um, of inflation currently. So the crisis that we're in. It, the high inflation is not being driven by wages. It's being driven by supply side factors, um, such as the shortage of supply in some in energy, such as disruptions to supply in um, supply chains. Obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had a, a, a massive impact. Mm. It's, it's most directly a, a tragedy for those. I know, but if you uh, if you deliver war, massive, had a massive impact. Sure, but uh, so, at the same time, Gareth, if you deliver massive pay increases, and just to uh, use the gaming sector as a, an example, the people who are making these huge profits are going to be asked to reduce their profits because they have to pay out more in wages or increase the cost of the product to the consumer. Uh, and there's where you end up chasing inflation, is it not? So that's only if that's only if they decide to uh, maintain or seek further profits. So the the, the challenge there, Michael, is not mm. that wages have gone up; it's that the response of those companies has been instead of to accept 
slightly less profits and a fairer distribution of wealth, they've decided to pass on that wage increase to consumers. To I, know. So, <laughs> I, I know. I know. I know. And I, 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 I guess that's what we're both saying. And <laughs> what do you think will be the outcome, I suppose, is the question. <laughs> and and that, that does come back to that kind of bigger question of, um, uh, you know, are we happy with how wealth is distributed or do we actually need society, governments, uh, uh, the media, trade unions, etc., to begin to say to corporations, look, when is enough enough? Is half a billion, is two billion, is six billion? Mm. You know, at some point, wealth has to be redistributed down or we are going to face just societal breakdown and cleavage is like it, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. so extreme. Yeah. So I, I think corporations have to say, well, do you know what? At some point, we're just going to have to redistribute wealth downwards. You know, we have enough. We're rich enough. Like, yeah. Well, whether that transpires or, or not, uh, only time will tell. What we do know at the moment is that people really are feeling the pinch, and that's why you're calling for an increase, a significant increase in the rate of uh, the minimum wage. Gareth, we'll leave there for the moment. Many thanks for talking to us. Much appreciated. Uh, Gareth Murphy is head of industrial relations and campaigns with uh, the Financial Services Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, today is Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Day, FASD Day, and to mark the day, the HSE is encouraging pregnant women and women planning a pregnancy to have an alcohol-free nine months. They say that even a small amount of alcohol at any stage of your pregnancy can harm the baby's development and may have lifelong effects such as FASD. The Irish Times is reporting today that Ireland has the third highest rate globally of alcohol-related birth defects at 47.5 per thousand head of the population because of women drinking during their pregnancy. Let's speak to Una McKinney, who's head of communications with Alcohol Action Ireland. A very good morning to you, Una, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, And you've been polling people and asking about health warnings on alcohol. Um, We can talk about those findings in a moment. Mm. But are you as surprised as I am uh, to read this today, that there's so many women drinking whilst they're pregnant? Well, obviously, yes, it is a very high figure. Um, I suppose a lot of people, you know, would continue to perhaps drink not knowing that they're pregnant, perhaps, is part of the dilemma that people face, women would face in this area. Mm. Um, so it, does, it doesn't surprise me that much. No. I mean, uh, mm. And, you know, as I understand, there's the level of, let me, let's, let's call it uh, unplanned pregnancies perhaps is also very high as well. So, you know, people, people fall pregnant but may not be aware of it that they are and maybe continue to drink. Um, and, and they're so good points. There, there, there is a bit of a dilemma mm. that, in but, that but, respect, but, but. but are there women a couple of months into their pregnancy knowing um, the situation, in other words, uh, and continue to drink? I, I mean, uh, we're going to talk about health warnings, but I, I would have thought that was mm. one that wouldn't be necessary, that uh, everybody would know that you shouldn't drink during pregnancy. Yeah, you would think that, but unfortunately that's not the case. And evidence is there to show that unfortunately some women do choose to drink during pregnancy and, and possibly do so because they're not entirely aware of the risk. Um, and I know that might be hard to believe, but, but you know, there's a high level of, um, you know, 
let's call it illiteracy around health issues and sometimes that this is what can happen that people would continue to carry on a normal lifestyle but with not fully aware of the risk in which that they're taking okay all right uh, maybe that's uh, one of uh, the warnings that should be put on alcohol if it's needed i'm surprised that it would be needed uh, and maybe it would be ignored if it was uh, on uh, the bottles or, or whatever because mm. you'd, you'd imagine most women would know uh, the consequences uh, but uh, as i mentioned you have uh, conducted a poll uh, and you've been asking people about health warnings and there's huge support for them on alcohol products there is, yeah, and, and this really comes back to what are, you know, the proposals, and not even proposals, the law of the land, which is essentially enacted within the, the Public Health Alcohol Act of 2018, which says that we must place warnings on alcohol products. Now, unfortunately, that matter hasn't been commenced, and is actually the draft regulations to to implement it are before the European Commission for for some degree of further scrutiny. And so we conducted a poll um, in August, just to, in advance of that, to try and make sure and, and, and appreciate what the public mood was in relation to these matters. And as you say, there is overwhelming support by the consumers uh, for these types of warnings to be placed on products. Because mm. people, again, recognise quite simply that, you know, you cannot make an informed choice or decision unless you're necessarily armed with, with with some degree of information. And so what these warnings do is they set out some limited information in relation to uh, the risk around alcohol use. And so remind people at the point of purchase that there is a risk. And that obviously applies in the context of pregnancy, as, as mm. we outlined. Okay. Uh, you asked uh, if there should be labels warning about the risk of drinking alcohol during pregnancy or because of drinking alcohol of liver disease or fatal cancers. Yeah, so there's the three things that are, uh, by law, are meant to be on the, on the product. So there's a, a symbol which identifies the risk of pregnancy, which is quite a large symbol with a red line through it. And people can, if people are interested to see what these actually look like, they can, they'll be able to see it on our social media feeds um, at Alcohol Ireland. Um, and so there's a symbol for the pregnancy. And then there's two clear warnings in relation to the risk of liver disease and the direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers. Mm. And so, you know, there's, there's a very strong support for those particular types of measures when people are asked, would you, do you think that they should be clearly identified for people? And yes is the answer. And then the other point that's probably more interesting as well, which is kind of a, an issue around the right to know, you know, the consumers recognise too that they have a right to be informed. Of this. Mm. And that's a kind of an important factor that we sometimes, you know, legislators mm. and indeed the alcohol producers themselves fail to recognise is that people have a right to know these. I mean, we demand... The state demands yeah. at many levels that people act responsibly and mm. seemingly the industry are constantly bombarding people that they should drink responsibly. Mm. You cannot do those things. You cannot be expected to be behaving in a manner that's around sensibility and responsibility unless you're aware of the facts. And so what this does, much as it did with tobacco, yeah. is it moves it in a direction where people can actually know the risk. Now, you know, mm. you probably say to me, well, how much of a difference is it going to make? And of course, the difference it's going to make probably isn't in itself huge, but mm. it is part of a wider 
embrace. Yeah, well, pe- our, people our ob- people obviously agree with you. Seventy-two percent said uh, that everybody should have uh, the right to be informed, and sixty-two percent want these labels for pregnancy, liver disease, and fatal cancers, uh, and that's what people think. But you mentioned smoking, and that's what yeah. I was going to say to you because yeah, uh, the, the 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 photographs that you see in cigarette packets, a lot of people don't like them. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, they are, uh, they, are they are offensive. Actually, yeah, well, uh, uh, and and it's understandable. Like, I mean, um, you're going about your daily business looking at something awful. Uh, and a lot of people yeah. don't like them for that reason. But what really surprised me about your survey, uh, because, you know, there were people mm. opposed to these things uh, and uh, the vast mm-hmm. majority were in favour. But what really surprised me about your survey uh, was how few people wanted calorie information on alcohol. Now, it was mm. uh, the vast majority, 61%, but I would have thought mm. there would have been no opposition to that. Yeah, well, the opposition is small. It's only 11%, mm. to be fair. Uh, I suppose people are possibly ambiguous around the connection between calorie information and alcohol. And I think perhaps what that indicates is that people, are, again, are not necessarily making that connection. People don't necessarily see alcohol or the use of alcohol or drinking at the level of which we do as a contributor to obesity and to issues around mm, weight. Mm. But of course there is, uh, significantly so. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's, that perhaps that is the reason why, but it is an important part of a, a wider agenda around trying to inform people again of what are contributing factors to mm. poor health, poor health outcomes. And so, like tobacco, again, it, it it's not going to be the silver bullet to all our difficulties, but again, yeah, but if you, it does make a step in the right direction. I know, but if you did a survey, and they've done them, mm. and I just can't remember and uh, the sure. results of them, but uh, if you did a survey uh, on calories on menus in restaurants, I think most mm. people would say, yes, you know, you'd be up in the 80-90% range rather than 61%. Uh, people want to know what calories are in the food mm. they eat, uh, but it, it doesn't follow, obviously, with alcohol. 61%, it's, it is the vast majority of I don't want to play that down. I'm just surprised that more no, people no, did, know, yeah. no, did, I, didn't I, I, want I that information. Think, yeah, no, you would think that, but I would think it's probably central. It, the central reason is that people actually don't associate alcohol with weight, mm. uh, and I think they do so with food. And so, when you ask the question around yeah. food, I think it's quite likely that people would automatically make that association. Mm. Yeah. So it is part of a wider engagement with people to try and bring about. A, say, a change in people's attitude towards mm. alcohol, and that's that is part of that 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 agenda in that respect is to is to change the hearts and minds around alcohol, which of mm. course are very fixed, as you know, yeah. in relation to how well, we view alcohol. I, I think there's probably two sides to that as well, you know. I mean, you see people on a, a sparrows diet, if you like, uh, but can't mm. lose lose the weight, and you'd say, well, maybe you'd do better if you weren't drinking five bottles of wine a week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 just. I mean, just for your listeners' sake, for every gram of alcohol, essentially, it yeah. does relate back to eight calories. Right. So now that's a you know, people will say, well, "God, yeah. that's very complicated." Now, but you know, when you th- when you think about it, your average bottle of wine that has mm. seventy-two grams of alcohol in it, you know, that you're running into, you know, nearly five hundred, six hundred calories. Yeah. Well, the so, ca- the calorie counters you know, that, and there's that's many the calorie counters. The, you know? the calorie counters and there's many of them will understand exactly what uh, that means. Uh, but when people are counting calories and they're aware of the calories in alcohol, you see something else happen. They say, I'm giving up my five bottles of wine and I'm drinking two bottles of vodka. 
Well, again, I suppose you just don't, you don't know what the what the what the consumer reaction to that would be. But I would go back to the, the basic principle, and that is that at the moment, on those products, on and remember, alcohol products are exempt from all of this type of information because the alcohol producers got that exemption back in twenty twenty at the beginning of the century mm. from the EU. And I would suggest that by putting the calorie information on the the bottles as been proposed, and again, people can see what this looks like. It's quite innocuous in some respects, quite limited. But by having it there, then we can at least hope that people can begin to make informed choices. And I suppose that's, you know, that is the benefit of what this is about. It comes back to the core point is, do consumers have a right to know? Mm. And this is saying, yes, consumers absolutely do want the right to know. And so it begs the question, why would the alcohol producers wish to deny consumers this information that that is a bigger question that that perhaps needs some discussion as well and you know throughout this process the alcohol producers and the alcohol industry have vehemently opposed the introduction of these uh, particular labels so i think Mm. this is a this is a timely opportunity now this will be decided in the coming weeks and i think we we you know the more the public support is expressed in relation to these matters the more likely that it is that ireland will be given the uh, the sanction to, to proceed with these particular labeling well you're uh, speaking to us today uh, about your poll makes for very interesting reading uh, and coincides with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders day uh, as i said at uh, the outset and i might just read from the irish times uh, again repeat uh, what i said earlier on that advice from the hse and encouraging all women to have an alcohol-free pregnancy. They said even a small amount of alcohol at any stage of pregnancy can harm a baby's development and may have lifelong effects such as FASD and that could mean that they will experience lifelong challenges and may need support with many aspects of their health. They may struggle with learning, memory, attention, communication, emotional regulation and social skills and perhaps uh, that will act as food for thought uh, for some people listening to us today. Ewan and thank you indeed as always for joining. Thank you Ewan McKinney Head of Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some of uh, the comments said today, a text from somebody saying, in my opinion, the quickest way to get a government in Northern Ireland is to cut the pay of the MLAs until they reach some sort of an agreement. Somebody else saying women drink and smoke during their pregnancy before and after the pregnancy period. And when something is wrong with uh, the child, they play something else, maybe vaccines or something else, but anything but the drink and the cigarettes. Paddy Duffy says, uh, for Christ's sake, let's just bring in prohibition of alcohol and tobacco and food and cut out all of the talk about it. Uh, Nora in touch with us saying some of uh, the jokes and gags doing the rounds on social media following the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth are absolutely disgusting. Have uh, these people never heard the saying, if you can't say anything nice, then say nothing at all. It's fine if you're not a fan of the Queen or the Royal Family, but that doesn't mean you have to make horrible comments or snide jokes at the end of the day. While she may have been the most recognisable head of state in the world, she also was a wife, a mother and a grandmother and will be missed dearly by those who loved her. People should try to remember that. And James in touch with us today too, saying he thinks the appointment of Liz Truss as British Prime Minister is an absolute disaster for this country. She has made it blatantly apparent that Ireland, Northern Ireland, is very 
very far down on her list of priorities. So this doesn't bode well for the future. James hopes that someone in her new cabinet takes her aside and stresses the importance of maintaining a good relationship between the two countries. We have come too far over the last 20 years to allow her to come in and destroy all of that progress in one fell swoop. Thank you indeed, James, an anxious James at that for your comment to the programme today. Now we have a a new regulator, a gambling regulator. It's the first time we've had a gambling regulator in this country. Anne-Marie Caulfield has been appointed the Chief Executive Officer designate of the Gambling Regulatory Authority of Ireland. Let's speak to Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreehan. A very good morning to you, Senator, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. I suppose it could be argued this is long overdue. There's a very serious problem with gambling in this country. Thanks very much, Michael, for having us on this morning. Yes, it is um, very, very long overdue. We haven't had any substantial reform in our gambling legislation since the 1950s. So I'm sure you can agree that this appointment and the setting up of this gambling regulation authority is you know, a really important and significant step. As he very well says, we do have a real problem with gambling in the country. And um, I think there was a, a, land, a report there recently that said there's an estimate of 12,000 adults in Ireland who are problem gamblers and a further 125,000 people considered to be at-risk gamblers yeah. in Ireland. So you can see that, 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 that is a huge cohort of adults oh, yeah. and a huge problem, a so, huge problem for those families and, and people. And the damage that gambling can cause. Yeah, but but will the regulator stop that damage or or what will the role of the regulator be? Because, I mean, what we're talking about here is people losing their shirt, uh, but quite legally so, I think, in a lot of circumstances. Well, I suppose, absolutely. You know, I I suppose you're never going to stop problem gambling 100%. What we can do is stop more people becoming um, problem gamblers and also help those to get out of that addiction. So the, the authority will regulate the gambling and gaming lottery services of commercial and non-commercial providers, including their advertising, and will, that will hopefully um, achieve the high degree of compliance with the, the Act. There will be safeguards put in place. There will, be an, um, there will be a ban on the offer of inducements, like free bets or VIP preferential treatment, mm. a ban on the offer of credit, credit facilities to players and that there you know it seems so much common sense so there, there should not be credit when you're when you're putting in a, gam, a, a, a bet spending limits where that's practical a restricting of payment methods requirement that there is you know proper warnings and messaging pro- prohibiting mm. children from gambling I think these are all a really important steps in actually modernising the gambling industry because okay. as I said is that Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to cut across you. Um, can can you bet on something using a credit card? Currently, I, yes, I, there is, there are there is. I believe so. I, I'm not mm. a gambler. My like like with mon- money you don't have, or you know nobody knows whether you have it or, or whether you're, you're using. Yeah. Well, I suppose there is no prohibition on how you on on what someone spends um, online. So absolutely, there needs to be a far greater licensing and regulation with regard to gambling and mm. and. and gambling organisations and also how we how people gambling mm. most, most of us Michael will enjoy you know a small bet from here, here to there and on the Grand National and everything that's part of fun it's yeah. part of sport 
and no harm. But I mean, you hear, well, a, lo- harm, you hear a lot of right? people saying, I, I don't, I had a credit card and I gave it back. I mean, they were giving me two and a half thousand euro or three and a half. I, sure, what would I do with that? I don't want that money. I don't have that money to spend. So they give back the credit. But I mean, anybody can get a credit card and spend a couple of thousand that they don't have very easily. Absolutely, Michael. Yes, and this is and this hopefully what will happen with the new regulator and the new and the new legislation that will come in that will prevent gambling with money that you do not have. Um, there will be also, and it's a hugely significant step in my opinion, there will be a social impact fund. This will be financed by the gambling industry, mm. and that social impact fund is about the you know the health and the well being of our society and for those who gamble and for education around for around what what gambling is. Mm. So that's going to support research. Yeah. It's, Training. Is it getting worse? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the 1950s. I think in the 1950s, most people didn't have a, a phone, you know, with a wire in it, uh, let alone a mobile very, phone. And very little money to gamble with. Yeah, like exactly. Let it, and no credit sources either. You only had what you had or, or didn't have anything if you didn't have it. Um, uh, but it, has gambling got worse uh, because of the internet and are more young people getting uh, into debt and all of that sort of thing? Well, it's so easy to gamble nowadays. Mm. And I remember, you know, it might say that 15, 10, 15 years ago, there might have been, you know, people giving out about having a, a casino in your in, in local town. But now we all have that casino in, in our pocket, on our phones. Mm. And if you get, you know, if you look on, if you ever download some free apps, Michael, there will be there will be advertisements for gambling and for 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 for, for betting. Okay coming up on your phone okay. I'm, I'm running out of time I, I don't mean to cut you off but the music is playing I'm running out of time and hopefully this regulator will bring about uh, change uh, and uh, prevent more people from falling into that trap thank you indeed as always for joining us on the programme today that's Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreehan that's our programme for today God willing you'll join us for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.